Hello, it is Thursday the 16th of July. You're listening to The Briefing. I'm Tom Tilley. Have you heard about the secret letters between the Queen and the Australian Governor-General? Well, you're about to find out what is in those letters. They were released this week. And you'll find out what they tell us about one of the most dramatic days in Australian history. It was the most exciting, the most tumultuous, the most extraordinary day that I have ever witnessed. Yes, the letters that uncover the story behind that day in just a moment on The Briefing. First, Jan Fran is here to hit the big news of the day. Yes, good morning, Tom. Well, we have had Job Seeker, we've had Job Keeper, and now, wait for it, there is another uh, rescue package. This time, it's a $2.5 billion package that's designed to upskill and train young Australians who've lost their jobs in the pandemic. The money from this particular package will go towards two key things, free or low-cost short courses for young people and also wage subsidies for apprentices and trainees. Yes, and I can reveal the name um, of the job seeker, job keeper. This one is called Job Trainer. Dum, dum, dum. <laughs> so we're going to get more details when the Prime Minister unveils it today. So far, we know that nearly 350,000 spots will be offered to young workers in key industries like manufacturing, healthcare, transport and retail. Yeah, the Tradie Wage Subsidy Scheme, which pays businesses to keep around 180,000 apprentices on, that'll be extended from its planned September cutoff to the end of March next year. Yeah, so we're finding out about some of the government's uh, targeted measures for certain sectors that will continue past September. Everyone is still waiting, though, for the 23rd of July. It's Thursday next week. Uh, where the Prime Minister will give all the details on what's happening to Job Seeker and Job Keeper. Um, I wonder what the next name's going to be, Jan. Job Seeker, Job Keeper, Job Trainer, Job Sleeper? Uh, job Job Sleeper. <laughs> job Haver, Job Liker. The possibilities are endless, aren't they? I think let's cap it at three, though. I think after Job Seeker, Job Keeper, Job Trainer, I think we're good. Good things come in threes. And Melbourne's second wave has claimed another life, this time a woman in her 90s. But police say despite the deaths, some people still aren't taking the lockdown seriously and adhering to its rules. They don't include playing Pokemon, people playing poker, people holding parties. We're finding people in cupboards, we're finding people in garages. A person ordered KFC and sat in the restaurant and refused to leave. Police attended and the person still refused to leave, wanting to finish their KFC. Yeah, I feel like... Eating KFC is not a super pressing thing to do, particularly if you're surrounded by police officers. Um, that there was Assistant Police Commissioner Rick Nugent speaking after the state recorded another 238 cases yesterday. Yeah, Victoria's Chief Health Officer Brett Sutton says daily numbers should fall by the end of the week. But if not, he's open to pursuing an elimination strategy for the virus as opposed to the suppression strategy we've been following so far. I'd love elimination. Uh, we're not at a point where it's um, the, the right time to make a, a detailed consideration of its feasibility. It's worthy of consideration. Uh, there's no question that uh, it's got its own challenges, but it's got its benefits as well. So that was an interesting comment because it goes against what the Premier of New South Wales has been saying, as well as the Prime Minister, who said that elimination's not possible because it would double unemployment and wreck the economy. Well, I think New Zealand tried an elimination approach and their lockdown was very stringent very early on. So I think if we are going to take the approach of elimination, I think the people have to be really aware of actually what is involved in that. 
And the AFL is heading north to Queensland, uh, where it will likely remain for the rest of the season. Here is boss Gil McLaughlin. Victorian teams based in Queensland are fixed to travel interstate to play, will travel to their game and then return back to Queensland. Melbourne, which is currently based in New South Wales, will also move to Queensland next week. So that's what's happening for the players. Uh, This is what's happening for their families. Families will undergo a strict 14-day quarantine in a transition hub before reuniting with partners. Now, although Gil is saying that he is still very much planning a Melbourne grand final, Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk, well, she's got some other ideas. I did put in a bid, as you would expect me to, as Premier of Queensland, that if we're hosting most of the competition here, uh, it would be great to see if we could actually host a grand final. So... We put our bid in and uh, we'll see how we go. She sounds a bit excited there, doesn't she, Jan? You know, Melbourne's going through one of the toughest times in its history dealing with this uh, second lockdown and she's there sounding all excited about stealing their grand final and that comes after the New South Wales Deputy Premier John Barillaro floated the idea of taking the Melbourne Cup and bringing that to Sydney. Oh, Matt, what's next? Which state is going to steal Melbourne's good coffee, I ask <laughs> you? Kicking a state while they're down, is this what we really want to do? Um, I don't know if there's ever actually been a grand final, an AFL grand final played outside of Victoria, maybe ever. So if that does happen, it'll be huge. And Aussie teens are drinking, smoking and using less drugs than their parents. Yeah, this is according to the Australian Health and Welfare's uh, latest national survey. So two-thirds, get this, two-thirds of 14 to 17-year-olds have never had a full standard drink. Wow. Now, that is double what it was in 2001. The proportion of teenagers um, using illicit drugs has also dropped substantially. In 2001, it was 38%. Today, it's down to 22%. Uh, smoking is also uh, on its way down. 11% of people smoke, and this is down from 24%. 20 years ago. Yeah, well, I guess people in their 40s were a lot more debaucherous. Um, The studies showed that they're the most likely group to have used an illicit drug in their lifetime, and Australians in their 40s and 50s were the most likely to smoke on a daily basis. Um, Some of the reasons they've cited are that uh, young people are socialising online more, um, that they have a more Mm. moderate culture in general and a greater focus on health and wellbeing. I wonder if stress or like life stresses or perceived life stress has anything to do with this because it's funny that um, millennials, and this was a study that came out a couple of years ago, are actually having less sex than their parents as well. So it's <laughs> not just drinking and smoking. It's, you know, it's having sex as well that's on, on the decrease with the younger generation. It's just interesting to try and work out why that is. Maybe they hate fun. <laughs> Maybe fun's not cool anymore. <laughs> yeah, maybe. All right, Jam, we'll catch you tomorrow. Uh, Anarchist Mathis is here to talk all things royal. So, good news you don't have to wait until the next series of The Crown. 
because some real historical royal drama unfolded this week, Annika. Hi, Tom. Yes, for 45 years, letters between the Queen and Australia's Governor-General have been kept secret. But on Tuesday, against the Queen's wishes, they were released. Australians have finally learned what the Queen knew about the dismissal of the Whitlam government. Release of the so-called palace letters. More than 1,200 pages of correspondence between the Queen and Australia's Governor-General. These letters provide a juicy insight into a massive political scandal back in 1975 when the Whitlam Labor government was booted out of office by the Governor-General, Sir John Kerr, to try and resolve a political deadlock. This my proclamation dissolve the Senate and the House of Representatives. Those few extremists urging conflict and division are damaging Australian democracy. So the removal of the Whitlam government by the Governor-General, who's the Queen's representative in Australia, was considered one of the greatest political and constitutional crises in Australia's history because in a democracy, it's the people that normally decide when a government's time is up. And here is the now immortal reaction from the former PM Gough Whitlam right after he was sacked. Well, may we say God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the Governor-General. And despite all that outrage, Gough Whitlam never got his job back as Prime Minister. Nikki Sava was in Canberra for that moment. She was a young journalist reporting for The Australian. I've got to tell you that every time I see uh, the footage of Gough on the front steps that day, it just brings it all rushing back. It was the most exciting, the most tumultuous, the most extraordinary day that I have ever witnessed. Even now, despite all the things that have happened, say, in the last 10 years with Prime Ministers getting lopped and the trauma that surrounds all that, that pales into insignificance compared to what happened that day and also to the events that led to that day because it had gone on probably for close to a year before the actual climax. And it was just uh, extraordinary. And for a young reporter to be there, to actually see it unfold and, um, you know, watch it in all its sort of magnificence and and terror, in a way, because uh, nothing like that had ever happened before. Um, It was amazing. And um, I was hooked. And I haven't stopped writing about politics since. So there you go. Now that the letters have been released between the Governor-General, Sir John Kerr, and the Queen's private secretary, we've learned a lot more about John Kerr himself. For you, having witnessed him then and then reading the letters now, what do you make of the man himself, Sir John Kerr? We knew uh, he was a very vain man. He was a very egotistical man probably a very deceptive uh, sort of person. And uh, given he was that kind of uh, person, it was shocking, but it wasn't such a huge surprise. And I don't think it was a surprise uh, to Whitlam either. He was Whitlam's choice for Governor-General. I mean, Whitlam chose him and um, ended up paying an enormous price for that. It was you know, his um, his greatest error, I guess. So on Tuesday, we got more of an insight into what went down in 1975 when more than 1,200 pages of letters between the Queen's private secretary and the Governor-General were finally released. 
In those letters, we learned that John Kerr had told the Crown that he was considering removing Whitlam months before it happened. The palace didn't advise him to do it or not to do it, but they clarified he had the power to do it and that they trusted him to make the right decision. Look, Kerr deliberately did not tell the Queen it was about to happen because it was better for her not to know, and the Queen's private secretary agreed. Now, Professor Jenny Hocking is the historian who fought to have these 200-plus letters released. Jenny, thanks so much for joining us on the briefing. Firstly, congratulations. You managed to beat the palace. The Queen didn't want these letters released, and you've been working towards this for 10 years. Why did you think it was so important that we have these letters released? Look, these letters are between the Queen and the Governor-General and they're written during what is obviously one of the most tumultuous times in our history, that is the dismissal of the Whitlam government and the fact that they were kept secret from us for decades under the embargo of the Queen really struck me as something that was just actually quite outrageous because as critical documents in our history, we can't know the full story of the dismissal of the Whitlam government, unless we can see these letters. Now, Sir John Kerr says he dismissed Whitlam without informing the palace, but obviously through the letters we've seen some sort of involvement from the palace. So what do you make of, I guess, the Queen's role in this and also the palace in general? Yes, look, I think what many people have been really shocked by is the fact that the Governor-General is involving the palace in any sort of way in discussions about our political matters. And the thing that is most shocking about these letters is just how extensive Sir John Kerr's reporting, in a sense, back to the palace, as though we were a sort of branch office of Buckingham Palace here in Government House, about matters of our own political nature and matters that are for Sir John Kerr to be discussing with the Prime Minister of the day, Gough Whitlam, and not with the palace. And even more concerning is that the palace is involving itself in these discussions that then becomes engaged through the Queen's private secretary in discussions about decisions that the Prime Minister is going to make, decisions that the government is going to make. Sir John Kerr even reports back on an Executive Council meeting to the palace, and that's, you know, the highest level of governance is an Executive Council meeting, which is highly confidential. So these are quite shocking things that are passing between Government House and Buckingham Palace. And really, I think we have to ask, why is Buckingham Palace in any way involved about in these political matters in the lead-up to the dismissal? So do you think these letters fall short of proving that the Queen directed Sir John Kerr to remove our Prime Minister? Oh, yes. Look, I think there's never been any question of that. I mean, uh, I mean, it, it hasn't ever been a suggestion that, you know, the Queen wrote a letter, Dear John, sack Goff. I mean, <laughs> this is not the sort of thing that that has been expected. What, what what the letters show is really exactly what we expected them to show from, from material in Sir John Kerr's archives and from other material that's come to light before and since. And that is that the Queen was very closely involved with the matters that then led to, to Sir John Kerr's decision. So there's a difference between the decision-making process here that Sir John goes over for many months, part of which, of course, this, the key one is, of course, Do the reserve powers exist? Can he use them? And what implications do you think we will see from releasing these letters, both in the UK and in other Commonwealth countries? Do you think it will set a precedent? Well, the court case, um, which found in the High Court found in May this year, in a very emphatic decision, a 6-1 decision, that these letters were public documents, they're Commonwealth records, not personal records, as the archives had claimed, and therefore they have to be made public, as indeed they have been. And that in itself, the court case and the court decision, 
will make a precedent. It's a, it's a stunning precedent because royal secrecy has for decades, and of course in England uh, for centuries, maintained a really tight grip over any royal communications. They're locked away in the royal archives in Windsor and you can never get your hands on them unless the royal family says that we can. So this has overturned that in Australia. Um, it's a wonderful judgment. It's a very important decision. And there's no doubt that, that other jurisdictions in Australia, the states, for example, with their governor's um, records, and but also I would imagine in other similar Commonwealth countries will, will take this as a precedent to argue for the release of their archival records as well. Which I imagine uh, will make the Queen uh, even less impressed with you. Look, we have elicited a, uh, a statement from Buckingham Palace <laughs> last night. I think that's an indication of just how significant this entire uh, process has been and how significant the release of the letters is, simply reiterating what they've always said, which is the Queen had no role in decisions of the Governor-General. But I think we need to separate out, as I said, the final decision of the Governor-General, which had to be the Governor-General's alone. I mean, that's that's the simple fact of it. But the process through which the Governor-General reached that decision is the process through which, clearly from these letters, the Queen has been heavily involved. So that was Jenny Hocking, the historian that fought for these letters to be released. Uh, the big question today, Annika, here in 2020, 45 years later, is do these letters give the Republican movement any new or stronger ammunition to restart the campaign for Australia to cut ties with the Queen? Yeah, here's Nikki Savage's take on that. Well, I don't know that it's going to fire it up. You know, all the people who who supported it then will continue to support it now. But um, like you said before, uh, young people, you know, and a lot of people weren't born then. They are not invested in the drama or the repercussions of what happened in 1975. And they see the royals in a very different way. So whether that would um, make them turn and support a republic... I don't know. Probably not in my lifetime. That was veteran journo Nikki Sava. And I guess, Annika, at the very least, this is all some great drama while we wait for the next series of The Crown. Yeah, well, I better start from episode one so I get up to date. You haven't seen it? No. Oh, you've got to watch it. That's The Briefing. Catch it on your favourite podcast app or download the new Podcast One Australia app. A Podcast One production.